0: You're listening to the Girls Gang podcast, where we have such a wonderful defence mechanism that you don't dare kill us. We are in the month of August, and while everyone's going on their summer holidays, we thought we'd take our summer break away from planet Earth as we explore everything sci-fi. Coming out of Cairo's Sleep to discuss an iconic film with me today is a very special guest who I was actually considering asking to just come on and provide a lecture rather than discussing it with me, as I know he is such a huge fan and will have great many insights to share. He is a writer, screenwriter, editor-in-chief at Moving Pictures Film Club and host of the Moving Pictures podcast, an extraordinary talent in the community and a good friend of mine. Welcome, Tim Coleman.
1: Hello, mate. Oh, what a lovely introduction. I'm all like gone squishy inside, (laughs) like (laughs) a melted heart. Or maybe that's a xenomorph nestling against my ribcage. It could be either one.
0: Oh, okay. Well, stay tuned for that. (laughs) So how are you doing then? Last time we spoke, it was for Moving Pictures podcast as part of your Stephen King series. Mm. And we were talking about misery. So I feel like we've gone from the confines of one space to the confines of another (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely um no i'm I'm doing good yeah we were just saying off mic um yeah we're like we're both um ready i think for the break of the summer um and yeah just looking for a bit of i say wind down time but it's also festival season isn't it getting getting into the summer so um I kind of maybe a change of pace but looking forward to yeah watching a lot of scary movies and even though it's going to be glorious outside, spending a lot of time in the dark, preferably in the air-conditioned space over a, a local cinema. Yeah,
0: the air-conditioned dark, yeah. Everyone's flocking to the cinema, cinema in this heat.
1: Oh, tell me about <laughs> it.
0: So, Tim, would you like to tell everyone what film we are discussing today?
1: We're going to be talking about Ridley Scott's seminal masterpiece, Alien.
0: Oh, it's it's such a huge film. Um, so this was my pick. Um, I was really deviating between The Thing and Alien. Mm -hmm. Um, I've talked a lot about The Thing. I've written a lot about it. It's it's probably in my forever top five. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) Alien is the film that's always had an important part of my horror journey. And, you know, I've never really spoken about it before. So I really wanted to specifically chat to you because I know that you're a huge fan as well. So I wonder if you could tell... Tell me a little bit about your relationship with the film and any experiences you've had, any special viewings that you've been to, and, and anything like that. Uh,
1: yeah, well, I mean, first of all, thank you for having me on for this film in particular, because it is one that means a lot to me. Um, so I actually got into the Alien franchise actually through the sequel, um, James Cameron's 1986. Action, horror, sci-fi, (laughs) Trivector, Aliens, and I saw that um, probably when I was about ten years old or so. Um, I don't know exactly how old I was, but I was was young. Um, I had quite liberal parents in that regard, who were happy to kind of show me stuff like Aliens and the Thing and Halloween, um, Terminator, and and all that stuff. Like, if you see it at just the right age, I think as as a very transformative and um, instrumental effect on kind of shaping you as a person, and so. I know my dad used to tell a story that when we were watching Aliens for the first time, I was so um, equally like transfixed by what was on the screen. Uh, I couldn't take my eyes away from it, but I was pushing away from the screen and kind of like so hard, my back was pushing into the sofa, and I was kind of riding up the back of the sofa. So um, yeah, Aliens was my entry point, and then I I saw Alien soon after that. Um, I remember initially. Not loving it as much, and I think that was probably around the maturity level of being like a preteen. Um, like Alien yeah. is, is very action packed and moves along at this frenetic pace, while Alien mm. is far more considered, um, and creeping in its, its atmosphere and dread. Um, but yeah, I mean, like as a body of work, I just kind of fell in love with the xenomorph. and, um. If you like, when I look over my family photos, there's like, for example, I think my 11th birthday cake was a xenomorph face hugger (laughs) coming out of an egg. And there's a slightly embarrassing photo of me with like a a bowl cut haircut, but like posing with all of my um, aliens' models and novelizations. (laughs) um, I had, we
0: need these photos. We I'll, need them. I'll, I'll send
1: them over to you. It's <laughs> I, I equally find it cringy, but kind of glorious because I'm like, yeah, yeah. I, you know, because they, they just meant so much to me. And um, one birthday when I was maybe like forty, and Alien Three had come out by then, and I got like this box which I still have in the in the attic, which is like all three films in like a molded plastic case that looked like a face hugger and um so you asked about like important viewings i remember getting though that box out like putting on my aliens t-shirt and watching all three films back to back that was that was a big one for me At um, home. At home, yeah. Just oh, kind of, I love I, that
0: you put your t-shirts on for that.
1: Oh yeah, I, I had a. I mean, Aliens and Predator in particular like big for me. I even started an Aliens and Predator fan club with my friends. Oh where yeah. I, would, I would like.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Do like a little fanzine and send it around, and oh. I'd put like bits of trivia in it, and then I'd organize screenings where they could come and watch the films at my house. Um And yeah, just geeked out massively. I mean, in terms of uh, Alien in particular, it's definitely I've warmed to it a lot more as I've gotten older and i think it is a um in some ways a more mature film i want to say than aliens mm-hmm. i mean i still love mm-hmm. aliens it's still probably my favorite of the franchise but um alien is something that's appealed to me more and more and certainly um another big screening for me was when alien covenant came out i know odian were doing um a, i think a double bill i want to say of the director's cut of alien and then covenant and so you kind of booked one ticket for two films over five hours Um, and that was that was fantastic as well so yeah I mean so in one way or another the Xenomorph has been with me for about three quarters of my life now Um, and I yeah, we'll probably come to it a bit later on. When we talk about characters like Ripley, but it certainly has shaped my view about the real world in terms of what I think about leadership and what I think about women and autonomy and mm-hmm, power. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of really fed into a, a lot of those really foundational aspects of my belief system. So, yeah, yeah big film, big film.
0: Firstly, I, I would love to resurrect that fancy. And-
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the thing is, like the the trivia that I would put in it. Was objectively terrible. Um, So I remember putting one of the trivia was did you know that the planet which uh, they land on is in fact LV426, not LV427? Or I think I've kind of shamed myself now, I forgot, maybe got it the wrong way around. (laughs) But, like, literally, it was like just one number different. I was like, no one cared about that. It was just that I had got it wrong. And, uh, <laughs> you know, um, but nevertheless, it came with a lot of passion and a lot of love.
0: Yeah, that's what I love. And, you know, I liked hearing the way you describe your reaction to the film. Mm. It it's perfectly encapsulates for me, like, what I'm always chasing in horror. It's that combination of. Being ugh, frightened, but excited as well. <laughs> mm. So for me, this is this is like a quiet, understated masterpiece. It's yeah. everything's done without showmanship. Um, it feels like very grounded. It gives the impression of you know a fully functioning crew who are kind of ratty with each other, as you are with people in a workplace sometimes. Mm. Um, You know, and I think the characters are really, they're reflective of life. It's like people don't just exist in one mood or represent like one function or one type. You know, these are not like stock characters. They feel fully rounded to me. Um, And one of the other things I love about the film is its pace.
1: Mm. You know,
0: we spend a lot of time getting to know the crew. And it's like, it's not until I think almost like the one hour mark that the first death occurs. Mm. And I, I love as well how it plays with our expectations, you know, about who is the protagonist. I, you know in the sort of first segment of the film, I think we could be forgiven for thinking that Cain is the protagonist. Yeah, so yeah. I like how it plays with our expectations. As I've sort of gotten older, I, I really am interested some of the things that you've said, I echo, you know, the way it explores ideas around patriarchal violence, yeah. um, having a female character who acts with strength and is inspirational. Like Ripley's really helped me with my personal journey. Yeah. And I think the, the overall structure to me is, and we'll maybe talk a bit about how we define the film, but it's very slasher-like, which yeah. slashes are my favorite subgenre, sub-genre. And it's a... It's, uh, It's a formula that I find very therapeutic to watch and and facilitates a healing experience for me as an audience member. So I've always loved Alien for that. And then it just as a film feels like it's one of them rare occasions where everything seems to just function in harmony, like casting, performance, score, cinematography, everything here just feels like it's perfectly synchronized and just working in tune. Mm. I think like it rewards multiple rewatches and you know as we've both said I, th- I think how we watch the film changes with age mm. you know and in terms of like what's happening in the world like for example I used to I used to just watch it and sort of go along for the ride and enjoyed Ripley as a final girl style character but you know I find myself coming to it now as a more mature woman with like you know different ideas around like threat sexuality you know male power mm. so i like how it allows me to explore those things and, and where power lies and where power can be subverted mm. um in, in, terms of like my special, I, I went to, I went to a viewing at my local picture house where someone dressed up as the Xenomorph, and threw like lots of gunge and sticky stuff everywhere, okay. <laughs> which which was fabulous. I wish I had known in advance. So I would have like, you know, wore like a t-shirt I didn't really care about, but, um, it was great oh, okay. to be, it created that really great atmosphere as at, a, yeah. uh, And to see it at the cinema is just incredible experience. It it feels like it's made. I mean, all films made for cinema, but this film feels like particularly cinematic, doesn't it? Mm.
1: Yeah, 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 and absolutely. Um, um, maybe we should just touch on Ridley Scott as a director at that point, Mm -hmm. because I mean, Scott's. I think it's fair to say has had quite a varied career. Like, there's quite some absolute all times in there, like Alien, like Blade Runner, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, Gladiator. Um, But, uh, you know, one thing, even on maybe some of his lesser films, is he has got this incredible eye for for detail. Um, And, yeah, I mean, it's the imagery, the imagery in Alien is just deeply unnerving, but also beautiful. Uh, Mm -hmm. And yeah, when you see it projected, I mean, I I agree with you, like, I think seeing any film projected at all, is like seeing an animal in its natural habitat. You're kind of seeing it as it was intended, um, and I know I've, when I've seen films like Alien and, and indeed Aliens projected, I've ended up appreciating them more than even mm. if like I've seen them twenty plus times at home. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's it's a it's a very very beautiful film, and yeah, a lot of that talent in in Scott's eye um, that would get to be you know repeated and displayed elsewhere across mm. his across his career
0: yeah so before we I mean I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with Alien but for anyone who isn't would you be able to just give us a brief synopsis of the plot
1: yeah sure so
0: you can read the, it from your fanzine if you like oh
1: man I so wish I still had a copy now I feel <laughs> maybe somewhere in like you know in a box of uh, old memorabilia. But yeah, I'll, I'll do it off the top of my head. So let, let's see how we go, if I can kind of honor a 10 year old me. Um, <laughs> so the crew of the Nostrama, which is a deep space mining vessel, are awakened from hypersleep by uh, the ship's computer mother when a distress signal is detected on a nearby planetoid LV 426. And um, they go down onto the planetoid. In response, and discover a downed alien vessel, um, and in this vessel are a number of eggs, and needless to say, bad things happen.
0: You <laughs> like that you're shrouding it in mystery still for anyone who hasn't seen it. That's good. <laughs> oh, no, right. That's it. If you've
1: not seen it, do please like pause this podcast. Oh yeah, go yeah. and watch it. Come back immediately, but yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so before we get into the specifics and themes, etc., I be interested to hear how does this film make you feel, Tim? Like what emotions does it evoke in you when you watch
1: it? That is an excellent question. Um and i think maybe it ties into this question about like who is the alien of of the title mm-hmm. cuz i i'd always assumed as particularly as a, as a young kid when i saw it it's talking about the xenomorph um of course mm-hmm. so like yeah a little bit more of the plot is that kane played by john hurt gets a bit too close to an egg which uh opens up in a, a kind of a spider like creature called a facehugger wraps itself around his neck and impregnates him through the mouth um and then we find out has laid an embryo in his chest, which then erupts later into a, the titular alien, uh, or the xenomorph, um, which then eats the rest of the crew. Uh, so I thought, well, clearly that's the alien, right? It's this kind of parasitic creature. But mm-hmm. um, the spacecraft in which those eggs are found belong to another race of aliens, which are not seen in this film. They're kind of part of the prequel movies, the Prometheus and Covenant. Called In Alien, uh, the original film, they're kind of just called I don't even know if it's in the film, but in like kind of the, the mythos around it, the space jockey. So mm-hmm. they find this yeah. large alien creature who appeared appear to be driving that that downed vessel um, has had its own chest erupted out of. So it could be that animal, uh, or that could that species. But um my my personal feeling, and this maybe goes back to your question about how do I feel about it, is I wonder if the aliens of the title are the people. Uh-huh. Um, because I feel very discomforted by this film. Um, it feels like it is a film which is about the alienation of people in a kind of uncaring universe. Like I think as as people with uh our own moral compasses and our belief systems um, that we tend to try and make sense of the world and we have concepts like what we believe in about social justice or what's right and wrong. Um, and of course, there's a bit of flexibility between different people and different maybe political groups or religious groups or whatever, but most people have a belief system about what we believe is right and wrong. And the thing about the universe in Alien is that the xenomorph has none of that. It, it has no morality. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, Ash at one point talks about it as being uh, unclouded by yeah. the, these kind of human ideas of morality. Um, and it's very disquieting. It kind of makes me feel like a bit Nisherian, You know, Nietzsche talked about as you look into the abyss, the abyss looks into you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the feeling I get um, from watching Alien. You know, like, there's a lot of shots, for example, of the Nostromo drifting as this speck in this vast canvas Mm. of space even though it's a huge vessel it's it's tiny and you constantly feel like actually we are the trespassers here we are Mm -hmm. we are the aliens in the natural habitat of the xenomorph
0: yeah it's i see i i I wanted before we got into it just to hear sort of more from an emotional point of view how the film makes you feel because for me i find it a very calming film
1: oh wow okay
0: (laughs) and uh, i'm aware that 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 probably sounds quite absurd, um, because there's a lot of threat in the film, and like you say, there's a lot of discomfort. But I, I almost find some of that discomfort comforting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's because I'm experiencing it within the safety of a film. Yeah. So, like when when put in opposition to the discomfort of real life, <laughs> to watch it fictitiously to me is is actually I find it quite soothing. Um. I think picking up on what you said about you know you know what is the alien. I I I totally agree. I think for me, of course, you know on that top level, you've got the xenomorph and its various forms, and then as you said, the space jockey. But then you know we've also got Ash and you mm-hmm. know his status as a robot and him being reflective of an alien form, and then mm-hmm. also the alien environment. So like space itself feeling alien. And then this idea of feeling alienated, mm. like from other people, from civilization, from like you said, like, you know what the truth is. Mm. <laughs> and also I was thinking about the notion of like the alien that we have within ourselves as in, you know, the monstrous side of humanity and mm maybe the xenomorph potentially pushing Ripley towards expressing that side of herself, because I feel like there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of like pressure, like repression going on in this film, particularly in terms of the female characters and what they're allowed to express and how much they are, consulted and what kind of decisions they're able to make and what part they play so I think yeah it's very interesting to think about Mm. just to take the title and deconstruct we when we say alien like what do we mean and it's I think it's so much more isn't it than just the alien itself (laughs)
1: yeah no absolutely Um, that's such a good point um yeah, I mean, because the word alien at its heart just means other, right? Essentially. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> I mean we, we use it like just in real life. I I mean I don't like it as a term because I think it's dehumanizing, but people talk about aliens or illegal aliens being people who are mm-hmm. um illegal immigrants. Um but yeah, the, that idea of just othering, um, and it kind of situates the film in this really interesting amorphous space between loads of different horror genres, like you mentioned, it's got slasher beats, which it absolutely does, and it's got haunted house beats, which it absolutely does. It's very also kind of linked into those kind of cosmic ideas, like it's literally set in the cosma in the cosmos, um, uh, and a lot of like those kind of Lovecraftian ideas about the unknowability of what's out there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, the, the, the xenomorph isn't a Toothless-like malicious entity, but it's just it is unknowable in its implacability um you know it, it's just like it is existential angst with teeth coming to get you um and i think that's why that the first two films in particular even three I, I could stretch it to alien three um have that power i think it's it's a power we start to lose after that point particularly with the prequels where they go into unnecessary effort to explain where they came from um yeah. but but just taking it as a blank canvas that has no feelings, just is hungry, and you're on the menu. Um, is incredibly powerful.
0: Yeah, because as humans, we want to understand things and apply meaning to them. And really, as you say, it's like it—it's just—it it is an unknowable entity. Hmm. And I think that that sort of that that is really just—it's it, it, such a uncomfortable feeling. To, yes. to think that. And as much as I try and rationalise it down, and I can go down different routes. No, no route ever quite takes me right down to the end of the path.
1: <laughs> so yeah. it's like
0: there's these multiple possibilities, which I love. Like I love ambiguity in horror. So so I really appreciate that about this film. Yeah. But. Yeah, I liked how you talked then about like the definition of the film. It's like this is so many things. Like, mm-hmm. like I picked this under sci-fi, but really, when I think about it, you know, I do think about it more in terms of. Firstly, like I think about it, it's just, it's got elements of the slasher, it's got body horror, it's mm-hmm. got psychological horror. Mm-hmm. It's famous for having that haunted house, like theory applied to it as well. And I was thinking. This film is as mutatable as the Xanomorph in terms of its definition. Hundred percent,
1: hundred percent. Like, so I think the best films—not just horror films, but films in general—are those which um, askew like a really easy read of it of genre. I love stuff which is transgressive in terms of audience expectations and defies being put in a box. And I think, yeah, um, the the thing is about Alien is like it kind of splits between all of those and all of them kind of complement one another you end up with this really yeah. thrilling uh, like fusion food of of uh, just yeah very upsetting horror beats um and I'm yeah I'm here for it
0: <laughs> so let's devote a little bit of time to the alien then so what are your thoughts it seems to be that actually the thing that drew you to the films was the xenomorph itself as opposed to particular characters from what you were saying at the start. Mm. So what are your thoughts about the alien and its representation in the film?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, probably just because of the age I was when I saw it, I was uh, just like monsters, you know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: And that's why I... Loved aliens. That's why I loved Predator and Terminator. And I used to read um, the Dark Horse comics from that era. Where, a uh, little side note, um, if you've not read the Dark Horse comics, you can get them now in omnibus editions, and they're absolutely fantastic. Like they've they have, in my view, the definitive version of Aliens versus Predator, which was an incredible story, which got completely ignored in the rather mediocre to lamentable. Aliens versus Predator films. So, but anyway, yeah, the the kind of the draw to those things was at that age. It's the gore and it's the it's the monster. Um, So, in terms of like its creature design, we should say uh, it's uh, designed by H.R. Giger, um, the the famous artist, uh, and it kind of has this very or kind of very clearly organic like it's dripping and salivating and oozing but also kind of quasi mechanical um uh, aesthetic like it looks like it's made of tubing um and it's kind of like shiny a bit like metal as well um and Something I didn't pick up on as a kid, but like it's kind of fairly obvious when you come back to it later on, is is the sexualized image that goes with it. Like, mm. um, we mentioned slasher films a couple of times, and slasher films are famously a very sexual subgenre of horror because not only do they have a lot of sex in them, but like it's about uh, normally beautiful. Teens, some beautiful 20s getting penetrated by a killer, and normally as punishment for sex. Um, The alien in this film isn't punitive in that regard, but there is equally a lot of like penile esque penetration because it has this kind of little mandible mouth that shoots out of its mouth and you know enters the body. So, um, and and that's something even more explicit in Gaga's work. Like, you can go and look at some of the art that he's done um, across his career, and it's uh yeah it's it's very mechanical organic sexual um so all those ideas are kind of in play right from the beginning um and they certainly develop later on uh in later films like if you look at
0: mm-hmm.
1: films like alien resurrection for example um that sexualization of the alien becomes fairly explicit in in one of the kind of scenes in the third act of that movie
0: yeah and i think so i'm thinking about the the spaces that it occupies and you know this idea of the vaginal spaces and the womb like spaces mm-hmm. and it representing both giving of life and an absorption of life or like a con- mm-hmm. consumption of it. Like I'm thinking like Dallas's death is very, you know right. uh it speaks very much to that the forms it takes as well, you know, it can shift to its environment. It's unpredictable. It really, to me, like represents chaos. (laughs) And it's, it's a, it collapses boundaries as well, which is something I find particularly interesting. So I I like how it does that. And, Mm. you know, I wanted to talk to you a bit as well about the death scenes. Yeah. like I think the in 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 Alien the the death scenes are when I was watching back this time I was like they're so for the most part just fleeting you know and it's more about and I think this is true of when you know death scenes are. Executed in horror. It's about what comes before the death as opposed to yeah. the actual death itself. It's how that tension's created before you know the spring releases and you know the death actually takes place. yeah So I wanted to ask, what's your favorite um death scene?
1: <laughs> I mean it's whether it is a death scene per se is Debatable depending on which, like, cut of the film we're talking about, I guess. Um, but the scene where Dallas is attacked, Mm -hmm. slash, killed, slash, taken in the tunnels for me is probably the the great one, I would say. Um, (laughs) and it's because if you're claustrophobic, I mean, I'm not even particularly claustrophobic, but I think any (laughs) right minded person, the idea of going into a dark tunnel where there is this creature in there and you're not quite sure what it is, um, uh, you know, should should send like a shiver down the spine. Um but it's kind of made all the more unbearable by this incredible device, which is like doubled down in yeah. the sequel <laughs> with with the motion tracker, where they can see this thing is in there and it's moving, and then they lose it and then it starts moving towards you. Um, and like the the performance in that moment, from Tom Skerritt, who's playing Dallas. He's trying to keep a lid on it and trying to be professional, but you can see his panic is rising. Mm-hmm. You've got Veronica Cartwright, who plays Lambert, who is decidedly less composed. like She is freaking out, like, you know, you got to get yeah. out of there. Get <laughs> out of there. Oh. And then um, there's this moment where they realise that it's kind of moving in tandem to him, but on a different level, um, and he turns around and it's just illuminated for like maybe 12 frames or something in in the light of his flamethrower. And there's this squeal, um, and then it just cuts out. And it is so unnerving, um, but absolutely fantastic. Um, The reason I kind of said I'm not sure if it's a death scene is in the director's cut of um, Alien, there is a deleted scene that's restored where Dallas appears cocooned within the Nostromo Mm -hmm. uh, later on. And, you know, that maybe, you know, you can argue whether that should or shouldn't be in. The, the finished film, obviously, it wasn't in a theatrical cut, um, but it, it's probably helpful having it restored in a way because it kind of ties it in with the cocooning in the sequel. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as a sequence of an alien attack, that moment is is for me pretty unparalleled.
0: Yeah, it's an absolute masterclass in like tension and suspense, and just the juxtaposition of Dallas in the vent, and as you say, Lambert, and just watching the tracker and. Oh, it's so it's so perfect, and and just having those couple of seconds of the alien that that's all we need. So mm. I would completely agree. Plus, it's Dallas. I I, I do have some issues with Dallas. Okay. <laughs> but um, yeah. So if we talk about the company then, mm. which is like this absent physically, mm. but then also like omnipresence I feel in the film Mm -hmm. through other people through mother which is the ship's computer Mm -hmm. you know and almost you know straight away we have like that early mealtime scene where the crew are discussing like payments and you start to get a feel of the different hierarchies that exist within the group and I feel like the group are aware of their sense of them being a commodity, and that, you know, I think someone says our time is their time. Mm. And, you know, it happens because the company wants it to happen. So there's this sense of almost like control happening from off the ship almost. Mm. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think about the presence of the company in the film? And, those those ideas about hierarchies within the group.
1: Mm, no, yeah, I love it. I love it. I think it's one of those dimensions that, as an as a adult, um, I've definitely appreciated more than as a kid, uh, because there's a very clear through line actually through all the all of the alien films, more or less, but particularly in this this first one, it's really established of a, like class analysis in terms of how yeah. different um, different social classes interact. Because these guys here are blue collar workers right they, they're they they're essentially space truckers not to like invoke the Dennis Hopper movie which is you know of that name um but yeah they're they're kind of mining uh workers who are essentially going out to harvest um resources from you know from space um but what you then get in their interactions is that they're they're you know very salt of the earth kind of people that they're they drinking beer and they're arguing around, complaining about their wages. And um, they're, they're kind of like having the kind of normal composition that you would expect if you were working in um, like as a deep sea miner here on earth or, um, or a coal miner or, or like, you know, um, any, any other industry where you might um, go out there to kind of harvest natural, natural resources. Mm-hmm. So um, I love that stuff. And then the company, <laughs> the fact that it is this kind of, um entity which we never in this film anyway never actually see any human company reps apart from mother and apart from Ash um really who um is revealed to be an android in the last act. Um yeah yeah no I, I find it, it, it endlessly fascinating and it kind of speaks um a lot I think to the dehumanizing effect of capitalism. Like it mm-hmm. the, the company the one who wake them up from um wake them up from hypersleep, send them down onto L V 46. Um, and then later on we find that there have been instructions given that the own they, they kind of knew there was something down there. Um, and they have now assessed that that creature, the alien, the xenomorph, is the thing that they want and the crew are now expendable. Um, all of, I think the, the phrase is all crew expendable, all, all of the considerations secondary. Um, and yeah, it's it's a brutal, but quite truthful. Portrayal, I think, mm. of the logical conclusion of of neoliberalist capitalism, which puts profits above people, um, and yeah, I think I think it's it's a fabulous bit of satire in in the midst the bloodshed.
0: Yeah, and just touching on you know your comments there about that idea of like obligation versus safety, you know, when the crew, when um, the sm- the offshoots of the crew, so Dallas. Kane and Lambert. When they go on their expedition, you know, we have Lambert telling them they need to go back. We need to get the hell out of here. But, you know, they insist on, on carrying on. And then we have a sort of another example of that when uh, Ash and Dallas are, are looking at the the face hugger and Ripley yep. is trying to persuade them to get rid of it, you know? So I think this, 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 that comes from the company, but then there are forces within the group that seem to support that. And I think, of course, you know, this is like a working class group, but I feel that within that group, you know, we've got people of color, we've got women who all seem to really come slightly lower down in the pecking order than mm. what I would call like the powerful white male. And I would, you know, I put Dallas and Ash and Kane in that category. Like these are characters who we see discussing things, making decisions, and you know, in many ways I feel like it represents a like a micro society. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, in terms of like status and power, Brett and Parker, you know, make requests for like their equal equal pay, and I think it's interesting that they occupy the lower parts of the ship because that, to me, mm-hmm. reflects their status within the group and and you know from the company's perspective as well. Mm-hmm. You know, like in the sort of in the in the real world, like though the working class, like Brett and Parker, they also have power, and I like that they have an awareness of that you know like they are the ones that ensure that, that everything is running smoothly the foundations mm. are there this mm. ship cannot operate without them like mm. society cannot operate without the working class and it's a great moment for me like it's one of my favorite moments in the film when they assert their power by like you know overestimating how long repairs are going to take
1: yeah I love
0: that moment I'm like yes (laughs) so I think like this you know work's going to take 17 hours and they're like tell them it's going to take 25 and I'm like they're just using what little power they have so I am totally down for Brett and Parker Um, I think it's interesting as well like that Ripley is the only one that enters into that lower part of the ship where Mm. Brett and Parker are and in crossing that boundary, to me, it really speaks to the fact that she views them as equals to herself.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic uh, point. Um, and I think with Ripley as a character, it's worth talking, I guess, when we're talking about the kind of classist analysis of uh, the world of Alien and the, and the crew of the Nostromo. Um, of course, like as with all kind of different identifiers, they're all intersecting with one another. And so there's a big thread about um Yeah, gender, gender analysis of Alien, of, of which we're probably going to come to in a moment. But it's interesting to me that that um, Ripley, as a woman, is able, like you said, is able to kind of connect and identify with Brett and Parker, even though they don't really respect her loads. Like they, they they're quite lippy with her. Yeah, but she, she does go.
0: She gives it, it back a, though, doesn't she as well? Yeah, like,
1: <laughs> that's, I mean, but that's kind of who she is as a person. Like she, she's somebody yeah. I think of a deep integrity who um, is a natural leader, and she doesn't mm. care who, who you are or your social standing or whether you're white or black or a man or woman or whatever. Like you see it in Aliens as well, where she's the one who, when Gorman freezes during the first assault on the hive in Aliens, she's the one who takes control and takes the attack vehicle into the hive to rescue. The Marines, like and so she she's uh, she's comfortable, or if not comfortable, compelled to cross boundaries which might um be defined for other people along gender or class lines, but she she's somebody who is about leadership and integrity and getting the job done. And I think that's one of the reasons, along with of course Scotty Weaver's incredible performance, that she's become mm-hmm. such an iconic heroine.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so I wanted to ask you about this sort of pivotal moment where Ripley becomes the leader. Yeah. So this is like post the death of Dallas and, you know, the group's spiraling and nobody actually exclusively says we need a new leader. Like it's not like in the thing where it's like, so who wants to do it? No. <laughs> it's uh, everything's very up in the air. You know, there's a lot of, uh, anxiety in the room and you know Ripley's just the first to take control and get everyone organized. She you know she doesn't necessarily say I'm in charge now no. she just sets about the practical things they need to do and reminds them that you know of course they need to work together and how important that is as well. Yeah and I think it's interesting in the scene that Rip- Ripley has to raise her voice to be heard whereas Dallas never had to do that but she does have to raise her voice. So I think that's interesting. Mm. And as you said, she's a natural leader. And, you know, she just says, you know, you need to check the weapons now. And, you know, if we're going to stand a chance to survive, we've got to pull together. So I wanted to ask two things. So Mm. what do you think of this moment when she assumes leadership? And what do you think of Dallas as a leader?
1: These are some big questions. Rebecca. Okay, <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I'm like
0: firing some of these. No, at you.
1: <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, So, I mean, one of the best. We are. We were talking about synopses earlier. Um, one of the the cool synopses I heard from someone else about Alien was it's a film where no one listens to the smart woman and everyone dies um, because uh, yeah, Ripley is the one who uh, like for example when they're trying to bring Kane back onto the ship. When he's got his face hugger on, she's the one who is not wanting to do it because of it violates quarantine codes. Um, and she's overridden by Ash. Um, yeah, and then when she assumes control, it's kind of it's very organic and natural. It's like yeah, she doesn't. It's not a power grab, and I don't think she is even the second in command. I've got it in my head maybe she's third or fourth in command, but it's just out of necessity that uh, yeah, the other people are removed from the equation.
0: Uh-huh. I think she says to Ash when Dallas and Kane are off the ship, "I'm in charge."
1: Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so she's third in command, um, which, which is great. And we should say actually, interestingly, like Ripley was originally written as a man, um, because all, all the characters are just referred to by their surname. Like mm-hmm. in in a sense, there should be a kind of. I would say should be. There's a genderlessness to mm-hmm. the yeah. using them by their surnames, and I mean it should be in terms of it should be a meritocracy that everyone rises or falls in the virtues of their own character. But you know, obviously, it's it's negligent to not consider intersectional oppression and and how stuff like sexism and classism can still exist. But that said, it's interesting that she was written as a, a man and then they cast Sigourney Weaver to to bring that character to life. Um, yes, yeah, so, I mean I love it. I love that it is. It's not. A, a comment on her being overbearing. It's not that she's power hungry. It's just that she is the best person for the job. She's the most qualified um, and she's good at what she does. Um, and for me, as much as it is kind of quite dystopic and quite, you know, nihilistic as a film, for me, that's mm-hmm. kind of an idealistic way for things should be. Like we should be rising people up based on the quality of their competency mm-hmm. and their character, right? Like yeah. not, not on, you know you know, that would be the perfect way for, for society to operate. And I kind of, I just love it. Like she's, yes, she's a strong woman, but she's a strong person. Yes. She's, she's not even like a strong female leader. She's just a strong leader, Um, you know? And uh, yeah, I just love, I love that about her. I love the quality of, of who she is and how that just is brought uh, through to shine.
0: And, and what about Dallas?
1: Yes. Yeah, so Dallas, I mean, you kind of alluded that you didn't feel <laughs> so warmly towards him. I kind of, for me, like Tom Skerritt's performance is very warm and likable to me anyway. Um, but I feel like he's somebody who perhaps is a decent captain, but lacks enough wisdom to see when they're in danger, you know. Like he say so the reason he wants to bring Kane back onto the ship, I think, is that he feels a moral responsibility to his his crewmate. And I think that's laudable. Like, I think. You know, I've got a soft spot for people who are willing to break the rules to do the right thing. And I think in his own mind, Dallas feels like he is. But I also feel like he follows orders fairly unquestioningly, which Mm -hmm. kind of that way is the road to hell in some ways. Um, So, like uh, Milgram, who was a people might be familiar with, uh, did a a psychological experiment following the Second World War um, to kind of ask the question well, how did. The foot soldiers in the Nazi ranks commit such atrocities because there was perhaps at the time a bit of a uh, a belief that the Nazis were inherently evil or subhuman. And Milgram was like saying, "Well, look, like that's not the case, is it? Like what what happened was evil, but we're not talking about something." You know, fundamentally wrong with the people per se. Mm -hmm. It was the ideological social system they found themselves in, and so like Milgram's experiment, they did to kind of explore this hypothesis, was uh, taking people off the street and bringing them into like a a test room where they were sitting in front of like a, a dashboard full of like dials and, and buttons, and in front of them was like a, a glass screen, and the other side was somebody strapped into an electric chair, and they were then instructed by someone in a white coat to administer more and more voltage, um, to even to the point that the other person was screaming or that they would pass out. Um, now, of course, the doctor and the person screaming in the chair were actors, but what they found, or what Milgram found through the experiment, was that a lot of people, if not most people, will just do what they're told by an authority figure mm-hmm. even to the point of killing another person. Um, and so Milgram's hypothesis was that Nazi foot soldiers, again, I'm not talking about the SS and the High Command and those who orchestrated you know, the Holocaust, but we're talking about the, you know, the guards on, on in like like concentration camps. They were able to kind of assuage their own conscience by deferring it to, to their authority figures, you know. Um, and of course it's completely evil. I'm not like they thought they're off the hook. I'm just saying that everybody Is under the same risk of conforming to Mm -hmm. the man. In one of a better word, I think that Dallas kind of falls into that category a bit. That he, I don't think he's a bad guy. I think maybe he just needed a little bit more free spirit or free thinking, which which is what Ripley has. Like Ripley is the one who uncovers what what Wayland Utani are really up to.
0: Yeah. Um. So sort of leading on from that then, I wanted to talk a bit about something that I mentioned at the top of the podcast about patriarchal power and violence that's present in the film. Mm. So firstly, I wanted to touch on the dismissiveness of the female voice and the female choice in the film. So Mm. early on when um, Lambert, uh, Lambert, Dallas and... Cain go on the expedition um we have a, a sort of very worried Ripley who's realized that you know this is a warning signal and she wants to go after them but Ash persuades her not to and this really feels like an assertion of power you know yeah. <laughs> and it's very subtle but it and it it, it may read like not too much just to, to some people but to me it's it's a very a very firm like he he says it like a question like what would be the point Mm. but it's not really a question it's it feels like a loaded sort of threat Mm. so to me that's like an early warning sign that i think ripley gets onto as well um Mm. and then you know later on we have ripley telling dallas that repairs need to be done to the ship Mm and he dismisses them and he calls it like a bunch of horse shit and let's just take off. But, you know, she's trying to say, you know, there's still these fundamental maintenance works that need to happen, mm-hmm. but still like really not listened to. And then there's a scene after um, Kane's brought back on the ship where the the liquids like oozing and they're they're running down the decks mm-hmm. to, to track, you know how far it's going i noticed that that ripley says oh it's stopping and no one sort of like dallas is there i think i think parker and brett are there and nobody acknowledges it and then a moment later dallas says it stopped mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, you're literally echoing it <laughs> and so I also think there's the time when uh, Ripley wants to go into the shaft, but Dallas says, no, that's not happening. I'm going to do that. And I think you could read that as that is he feels as the captain, that's his responsibility. But I I also read it from Ripley's point of view, that at this point, I think she's looking at the leadership and I think she's calling it into question. She Mm. she definitely doesn't trust Ash. And because... When she has that conversation with Dallas, um, where so, where she sort of like locks the hatch on the two of them so they can have that sort of private conversation. Mm. So when she has that exchange, I think she's sort of gradually realizing that Dallas isn't going to question Ash. So mm. I think she's looking around and and my theory as to why she's volunteering herself in this situation is because maybe she's thinking... I can only trust myself at this point, and maybe I'm the only one who's capable to do what needs to be done. If that makes sense. Yeah,
1: no, that's it. Really interesting. And so, is that why you you because I got the impression you weren't a big fan of Dallas? Is is that why like things like.
0: This dismissive um, nature yeah, yeah, and okay. it, it happens with Lambert as well. You know, um when just before the first expedition, Kane is eager to go out and he volunteers. Mm. Dallas can put himself forward. Lambert's told that she's going, it's not a choice. Mm-hmm. And she's obviously incredibly nervous about that. <laughs> um And then later on, you know, she's trying to explain, you know, the situation that they're in. And he's like, just give me the short version. So there's, there's like these microaggressions, I think that are going on. Um, Mm. So yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to know if you have any thoughts about if you've noticed any of these things or what you think about, about that.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, I should just be honest and say I hadn't thought of it Um, and I should, also be honest and be like well i am also a white guy so like that's the kind of thing which as microaggressions there's always a risk that if you're part of like you know if i share a bunch of identifying characteristics with a character like Dallas in terms of my you know my gender and my ethnicity for example i wouldn't automatically be aware of them in the way that other viewers might be so thank you for like flagging it up that's really going to inform my next viewing i guess uh, of when i <laughs> of when i watch it
0: it was really it was only this last year and I, I I really noticed it myself. So I, I think it just is a testimony to the film, being able to reflect, Yeah. you know, what's going on in time and space at any given moment. And because those sort of things are at the forefront of my mind, yeah. I think that's how I responded to it. Mm. Um, let's talk about the attack on Ripley then um, via Ash. Yeah. Um, this is, A very disturbing scene Um, Yeah Not only does he Invade her space When she goes in To speak to Mother So with Dallas gone And Ripley Sort of taking Control of things She now has access To Mother The ship's computer And she can As she says Get her own answers now So it's I I think in terms of A a suspense It's an incredible moment When she sort of Leans back And he just appears Mm. (laughs) the attack on on ripley via ash you know it's it's very violent her hair's ripped out he's closing the doors Mm. on her it's clear that the prospect of being alone with him is not something she wants but Mm. he keeps like creating this situation that she can't escape from yeah yeah and then you know we have the the actual scene where you know, he thrusts the magazine down her throat. It's it's an enactment of of rape and penetration, but it's mm. also I see it as reflective of what we were talking about earlier about dismissing female voice. It's an act of silencing her as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's a very disturbing scene for like for like a bunch of reasons. Like, I think that's the obvious. Level which is that, and anytime you see like a man assaulting a woman, it should be an upsetting moment in cinema. Um, and the sexualized nature of it, like it's, um, like you said, it's a magazine, it's a porno, I think, that he's basically stuffing into her mouth. And like she is th- like thrown over onto the bunk bed of one of the other uh crew members, I think maybe uh Parker or Brett, and they've got some like porn pics or like page three pics up on the wall. So, like, even though he we we find out a few moments later that he's a robot. He's not actually looking to rape her. It's so coded as rape um, and as mm-hmm. sexual assault as to as to kind of give that additional level of uh, you know uh, horror and um, and deep revulsion against what's happening. Um, I think the the fact then that when it, Ash is struck over the head and he starts to bleed this kind of milky white you know mm-hmm. goo and he's then found to be a robot when his like head is literally half knocked off um it's just it's just another level of alienation othering because you're like okay well he, he wasn't actually trying to rape her but like what was he doing because that is a very inefficient way of trying to kill someone like if he just wanted to kill her surely he could stab her or i don't know like just Something which isn't so coded in such like mm. weird sexual imagery. And it, it's just very disturbing as yeah. they're like, what is he trying to actually do? Like you said, there is that silencing, but like if it was purely, I imagine robots would be purely about the efficiency of it, like, oh, I need to mm-hmm. kill this person, therefore I will snap their neck or something. But like it's it's far more unnecessarily sexual and necessarily elaborate than that. So it, yeah, it's deeply uncomfortable. Yeah.
0: And then I what I like is that. Ripley in return gets to make the ultimate power play by pulling his cords and like silencing him forever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I like that.
1: Yeah. He gets what he deserves.
0: <laughs> um, I wanted to touch on mother, uh, the ship's computer. Mm. Um, and firstly i just want to say that any like computer on in like sci-fi or films like like on these sort of ships and things it always freak me out <laughs> mm. like like hal in the space odyssey and then there's one in like moon as well i don't know if you've seen the film moon but um they always give me the creeps and i never trust them
1: <laughs> yeah and nor should we based on you know like
0: alien you know um but I think it's interesting that, I think we touched on it earlier, but you know, we see Dallas go into uh, Mother's room early on and mm-hmm. he is not able to get any answers or to, uh, t- to gain any information that, that helps them. But whereas Ripley, when she gains access... You know, she can get more answers than than Dallas, including that mm. objective of, of the crew being expendable and like preserving life above all else. Mm. Um, so I have a theory about Mother okay. <laughs> well, that I wanted to to share. Um, and see what you think.
1: Yeah, let's go for it.
0: <laughs> so, um. So, Mother, then, as in, you know, the very title comes with a whole like basket of connotations, right? So, mm. you know, Mother is a nurturer. But it's like, for me, Mother is not a nurturer of the crew, but of the company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, the way I read Mother is that she is effectively male power in disguise. Mm. And in that sense, it's almost like the company are exploiting female titles and female roles for their own game. So it's like mother is being taken over by the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. You know, the monstrous mother who is designed designed to deceive the crew. It's like the. They chose the title Mother, assumedly, because of all these connotations, but mm. they're actually... Uh, Mother is not a nurturing force, you mm. know? And she actually abandons Ripley eventually um, when um, Ripley's trying to abort the mission. She doesn't even acknowledge Ripley. Mm. And Ripley has that moment where she's like, you bitch. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, when Ripley's smashing up Mother... It's emblematic of rejecting power and the corruption of the company and, mm-hmm. and smashing that up. So I wondered what you thought about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. I love that. Yeah, I mean for me, like mother always felt like a little bit of a, a straw man. Like um the name, of course, as you say, has the connotations of protection and nurturing and safety. Um, but she offers none of those things and she is purely a mouthpiece for the, the company. I guess because She's barely a character in the way that someone like Ash is, who is also Mm -hmm. a robot and is also a mouthpiece for the company, Uh, or Hal from 2001, who you you mentioned as well. Um, So I I never felt much affinity towards it, but it feels like it kind of just seeds this idea of of motherhood um, and offspring and re- the reproduction and the reproductive cycle as well which is, is very core to the alien myth- mythos you know uh, a scene which we didn't actually talk about yet which I probably should have mentioned about with the best death scene but is of course where hmm. Kane gives birth via his chest over lunch you know um, <laughs> as, you <but> do. <laughs> as you do Oh my gosh which um, I, mean, I probably just didn't mention it because it's so iconic we just assume that yeah. everyone thinks at that moment um, but yeah I mean it is it's a, f- a film at its heart about Mothering and reproduction, and that's something which is in pretty much every one of these films. You know, that's in the director's cut of Aliens, where revealed that Ripley herself is a mother, trying to get back to her daughter Amanda, and of course we have the alien queen as the archetypal mother in in the second in Aliens. So, for me, I kind of always thought about it as kind of part of that trajectory about motherhood. But yeah, I love I love what you said about. It being the um, patriarchy in disguise, I think that's absolutely correct. And uh, yeah, maybe puts me put in mind of things like Orwell's 1984 as well, where mm-hmm. Big Brother, like kind of invocation of familial language, but really it's a totalitarian state who want to just fuck you and kill you, basically. So <gasps> you got you got to, yeah, not, I get it, again, it feels like social satire, like just saying to people, remember, people might use these words to try and like, assuage your misgivings, but keep your eye out because those totalitarian capitalists will chew you out, chew you up and spit you out, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and mother's computer room has always reminded me of the diary room in Big Brother.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. That is a great shout. <laughs> Are you saying you'd like to see a big brother where they release a xenomorph or impregnate one of the house guests with a xenomorph and just let it play out? Because if, if that's what you're saying, Rebecca, I'm here for it.
0: Let's let's start let's do a kickstarter. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Amazing. Amazing.
0: Oh, so, um thinking about like space and the environment then which we've we've kind of touched on, you know, the designs and and things like that. That sort of combination of um the the beautiful but the grotesque. Um you know, I wanted to just talk about the interplay between interiors and exteriors
1: sure
0: um you know we have the closed environment of the ship versus the expanse of outside both things by the way which terrify the hell out of me mm. like space just really scares me like open open spaces as i think we've talked about before tim but in mm. horror open spaces really terrify me i think it's just this prospect of nothingness mm-hmm. <laughs> I find really it's it, it skin calling yeah. and then obviously like claustrophobia on the ship as well is equally you've got that sort of social drama and attention that is occurring there yeah um you know when they're on the ship it's like they're effectively in a cage with the alien you know yeah it's it's, the prospect of that's just horrific but you know the interiors and exteriors are mirrored throughout you know the body horror and the ship itself speaking to the boundaries that collapse in. you know there's dark and light parts of the ship and this sense of like being vulnerable inside but vulnerable outside as well um And then thinking about like boundaries, so space in terms of, you know, not just space itself as Mm. in, you know, other galaxies, but space in the context of boundaries and like these being like invaded and disrupted.
1: Mm. So,
0: you know, just the group visiting the, you know, going on the expedition and being, you know, crossing a boundary there and being like alien in that context, Mm. You know, we've got Cain disrupting the boundary of the egg. Mm-hmm. It kind of like it shoots him a warning sign, like it kind of like crackles at him and or oh, yeah. snaps, but he still disrupts that boundary because he wants to gaze, he wants to look, he wants to touch. Mm. And then, you know, on the flip side, I, I really love the scene where Asher's on his own in the lab and Ripley comes into his space mm. because you can see how uncomfortable this makes him and, you know, she really asserts her power here. She reminds him that she's in charge and, you know, that he's breaking quarantine rules and, you know, there's all this, that's not out of the manual. And I think I'd like to hear what's your take on like the idea of interiors, exteriors and like potentially like these boundaries and space
1: yeah, yeah, no, I, I love all that stuff. And I, I think it kind of feeds back into what we said at the top of this episode about the existential Nisharian sense of disquiet which which permeates the whole film. Um, and I, we should say as well, like a, a big shout out to uh, Jerry Goldsmith, whose score for mm-hmm. Alien yeah. is so unsettling, like, like the opening title crawl, which is this kind of very <laughs> slow... Um, pan from the left to the right across a um, kind of an eclipse behind our planet. Um, and like the the lines that make up the title alien just coming in one at a time with these kind of discordant tones from Goldsmith's mm. score. It's just deeply uncanny. And mm. and like every you're right, like like what is worse, like being on the, on the mode <laughs> with this, this horrendous monster or being adrift in the limitlessness, nothingness of space. Like I probably would slightly take the second option because at least then you've got a chance, but it's <laughs> It's, yeah, it's like a rock and a hard place type situation. And I think it just feeds back into our prior comments about the sense of alienation, the sense that we ourselves are interlopers in this environment. Um, we shouldn't really be there in a way, like mm-hmm. where we mm-hmm. are outside yeah. of our own uh, environment. <laughs> <Restriction>, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like I mean, I'm not like anti-progress. I'm not saying, hey, guys, <laughs> never explore space. But I, I, I am saying there is a sense of...
0: Explore with caution. Explore with caution, you know, <laughs> and
1: and just a respect for the fact that we are not owners of the universe. You know, <laughs> we we are guests in something else's territory at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean that. I think that's for me that, that that there is probably for me one of the scariest shots in the whole film is when they eject uh oh, Kane's I body. Am. Yeah, yeah, and it, they have this kind of quasi. Loki funeral, he's been wrapped up in a shroud and they just fire his body out and he just spins off into nothingness and you just know it's going to be spinning for eternity. Mm. And that's it. And for me, it just deeply makes my my heart quiver. <laughs>
0: yeah. Every time I watch it, even though I obviously know, but they get what like Dallas I think says, Does anyone want to say anything? I am willing. I'm going, please, someone just say something. Like <laughs> just just something. It's so sad that nobody says anything.
1: <laughs> That's it. Just to like com- commemorate the man, the moment, you know. But but this is what I mean about it being a very uncomforting film. Like there's there's no comfort from beginning to end. It's yeah it's, uh, yeah. I it's mean, very... they could
0: have said, you know, he was a man who loved spaghetti. Or <laughs> well,
1: this is it. Cause we're not even saying it has to be like a religious ceremony, but like even like a secular ceremony is is skewed because there's a sense of. There's nothing to say. It's, it's very nihilistic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um so I can't believe that we've talked around it, but I kind of wanted to save the best to last. Right. So um let's talk about Ripley then. Um yes. <laughs> so first of all, I wanted to sort of acknowledge that <clears throat> within the sci-fi genre historically. Women are often assistants or damsels in distress. So I think that it's great here that, you know, we've got a positive representation of a woman who emerges as the protagonist slash final girl. Um, Ripley is, to me, she's she's sharp-witted, she's intelligent, she's Mm -hmm. quick-thinking, she's good at her job. I like that she's never placed in that space of being a hysterical woman. Yeah. Um, She's solution-based, aware, measured. I mean, I feel like this is like, it's like the CV from heaven, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. She's got great leadership qualities. You know, she can, as we said before, she can handle banter. You know, she checks on all aspects of the ship and she knows all the functions. Mm. So speak to me then a little bit about your thoughts on Ripley's character and, you know, why you think it is that she is the sole survivor?
1: I mean, I love her, um, <laughs> and she's kind of just like I, I mentioned earlier. Like um, seeing this at a young age, it really informed my view about uh, gender and what I thought about what men and women could do. And I, I just kind of are just really thankful to the you know, this film uh, and Sigourney Weaver and her performance. I guess for like just putting that imprint out into culture mm. of a a woman who is strong and competent um and she's she's not a guy you know like she, she she's not like asexual like she mm. has a sexuality like in the second film for example you can tell she has feelings for hicks and there's you yeah. know we said there's reference to her already having a daughter in the director's cut um but yeah she's just a, a competent person of good character you know, um, someone who's a leader and just gets the job done and is wise and intelligent, but also doesn't take any nonsense and can mm-hmm. hold her own corner. And she's afraid, but she's still brave when she's afraid, you know. And it it, yeah. it, it just avoids all of the lazy binaries that you might put a female character mm. into. You know, um like you could you can be fried without being hysterical, or you you know, yeah. you, you can be strong without being domineering or bossy you know in, mm. in air quotes bossy is usually that kind of crap misogynistic label that gets chucked around to women with leadership skills um yeah and so i just think it's just an incredibly well-rounded and compelling performance and i love that in this first film she just emerges gradually from the shadows. yeah like, <laughs> you, you know in the first 15 minutes you don't know that she's going to be the main character
0: no.
1: um but she just kind of just becomes the sole survivor And you think at the end, yeah, you are the sole survivor because actually you just, you saw what was happening probably before anyone else and you Mm. made the most sensible decisions. Uh, And at the end of the day, that's what counts, you know?
0: Yeah. I also think, you know, one of the things that um, my parents would always tell me growing up is to question things. It's healthy to question, yeah. you know? And I think if now I'm thinking of our discussion earlier about Dallas and being too eager to just be swayed by other people Mm. and you know Ripley to me like one of her strongest qualities is that she questions people authority like you said earlier it doesn't matter who you are it's like her approach will be her approach and um you know I just love that about her she's not a doubter I don't mean a doubter but she's a questioner and I think that's a really strong quality to have. have um as a leader as well, you know, I think she's incredible. Um, she she leads the way, for example, when she's split off into a team of Brett and Parker, you know, she's in front of them and they're behind and she's got the cattle prod off them. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that's a terrific scene. Um, you know, with, with three of the crew left, she prepares the shuttle. And then, you know, we have that nice scene where she rescues Uh, Cat, Jonesy. And then I think we see, like, see, I think with Jonesy, Jonesy seems to bring out that, like, more emotional, softer side of Ripley. I think it's really in those moments with the cat that we see that softer side. Mm. Um, And when she's like, hears the screams of Parker and Lambert, and she's running down the, the, those, that scene where she's like running down the dark corridors, and then she's confronted with the, the body is you know she doesn't allow her to phase her she just swings into action yeah. you know yeah. she's totally alone except for jonesy but she's like running off adrenaline you know mm. so like what do you think about those sort of final moments uh just after sort of the death of parker and lambert
1: yeah i just think it does an incredible job of balancing the natural emotional reactions that any Sensible person would have to those situations, <laughs> which would be panic and yeah. uh, feeling incredibly afraid. But with she never compromises her agency, like she's not one of the like dumb characters that you might get, in a slash a film who's running around just screaming, waving their hands. She's got a job to do and she's going to get it done. And for me, like that, that's so aspirational that actually, in, in a crisis situation, that you can feel all your feelings, but you can still. In the woods of, you know, Shakespeare, like screw your courage to the sticking place, and (laughs) and kind of get get the job done. And for me, that's always been a wonderful balancing act Mm -hmm. between vulnerability and strength that is Mm -hmm. at the heart of Ripley. Like you see it again, like in the first act of Aliens, where she's processing the PTSD of the first film and having night terrors and having private tears as she's kind of remembering what's happened. But when the rubber hits the road and they get, you know, with the Marines in lv forty six, she is the pillar of strength. as all the hard Marines fall to bits around her. Um, and, I, yeah, I just love her for her, I think. And it, it, she's incredible.
0: <laughs> so just when we think that we, you know, doesn't, we can't take any more, and <laughs> we're, like, almost entering this, like, faux catharsis, mm. um, you know, we've got this, like, false relief so we've got the exhale moment, she's, yeah. hug, she's hugging So she's on the shuttle, she's hugging Jonesy, she's telling him it's all going to be okay, and I, I I read this as like, it's really self-soothing, you know, mm-hmm. she's telling herself it's going to be okay, but the cat's just there as like a conjurer, you know, yeah. Yeah. which I can totally relate to, and cats are proven to be, you know, very good for like reducing the stress and blood pressure, so she's doing all the right things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, also I noticed that the cat, like when she puts it like back into the pod, it has a little growling moment and I'm ah. like, does the cat know? The cat knows. The cat, cat knows. Cats always know. So yeah. So we have this moment of, everything oh, everything's going to be fine. It's all coming together. She's, she's got a plan and she's safe. Mm-hmm. And she starts to remove her overalls and there's a lot of discourse, out there about this moment So mm-hmm. I did want to like touch on it My reason <sighs> is For me It's like at this moment She needs comfort And she also needs to shed The trauma of what she's just experienced Plus I feel like This is her letting a guard down And being yeah. being comfortable With feeling vulnerable again You know, mm-hmm. now that she's safe you know, her being in her underwear as well, to me, like what it also does is, it, you know, A, it shows she's comfortable in her own skin, but yep. B, B, I think, you know, cinematically, it, it works very well for what's coming next because yes. it makes it, it puts her in this position of extreme vulnerability for when the alien reappears. So, yes. Yeah. Talk me through this scene
1: then. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, as you said, she she makes it onto the escape pod. She's has uh, been unable to reverse the detonation sequence on the on the Nostromo and makes it away with seconds to spare. So the Nostromo is destroyed, but the escape pod makes it away. Um, as you said, she kind of feels like she's she's made it, she's okay, she undresses, um, and the alien is revealed to have stowed itself away on the escape pod. Um, yeah, I mean. In terms of like the stuff with her in her underwear, um, I think there's a surface read of this, which is that it's just uh, exploitative titillation for male audience members because she's in her pants and uh, her nipples are sticking through her top, and it's just kind of like, did like it didn't need to be like that? But I, for me, it is more, as you said, like it kind of highlights the vulnerability. Um, It's a bit like Chrissy swimming naked at the beginning of Jaws, like, did she need to be Mm. naked? Well, not so much, but it just kind of heightens the the sense of like, there is nothing between you and these teeth, you know, Um, and it it kind of brings in that, like we talked about the design of the creature as being quite sexualized as well. So it kind of just puts some of that in the mix. Um and yeah, in terms uh, the underwear that she's wearing as well, it's worth saying that it's just plain white pants and vest, right? Like mm-hmm. she's yeah. it's not like um you know flashy lingerie or anything. And it kind of just it feels like it's still in keeping with her character that she's a, a, a working yeah. person. This is just like functional undergarments, um, which I think is a comment I need to credit uh, Jen Handorf, I think, for with that, who spoke about this this film for the evolution horror. Um uh but yeah, so she sees the alien. She then gets very, very slowly into a spacesuit, and we can see her starting to put together a bit of a plan. Uh, and she manages to open the airlock and hit it with a harpoon and blast it out of the door. Um, but this whole sequence is unbelievably tense. It's just <laughs> like load. I, I think there's no score in this moment. It's yeah. just foley and it's breathing. And it's slowly creaking into the spacesuit <laughs> and just slowly like kind of self-soothing talking. And it's just unbearable. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's so, so good.
0: Yeah. And the way it's just pulled out the bag after everything that you've already experienced and everything that Ripley's experienced. Um I read somewhere that uh Ripley retreating to the to the spacesuit is can be read as almost like her literally retreat into like the closet space of the final girl in the slasher film okay which i think is interesting but um i think it's interesting also that the the underwear and the spacesuits are both white Mm. a color that's representative of purity cleanness freshness healing you know and i really feel like Uh, Jenny's told through costume here because she's stripped down, but then she's built back up again. And it's like when she puts that suit on, she is even stronger and more protected than we've ever seen her before. And I think that speaks to the strength and the power that she's gained through her experiences.
1: Uh, Interesting. Yeah, and I guess if we wanted to kind of uh, tie some of that stuff into it, um, the alien we've talked about as being this creature which penetrates people when it eats them or attacks them. She is the one who penetrates it at the end as well. She hits it with a harpoon into the chest.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's like um, kind of
1: inverted there.
0: Another inversion. Yeah. Um, like Kane's impregnation. It's like another inversion. Mm. Um, and we see her singing like the Dark Star song, which is such a. This time it really got me. It almost felt like a. I want to say like a PTSD moment, but it's obviously not because she's actually in the moment. But yes, it's. It, does that make sense? It's yeah, like yeah. It, it, she's really talking herself through it. And it's, uh, you know, she, like you say, she, she tries to sort of like blast the alien out, but it gets caught on a weapon. And it's like a fetus hanging from an umbilical cord. Oh,
1: that's a great and, point.
0: And I feel like this is a symbol of both something... That needs to be severed, but potentially a connection as well Mm. between Ripley and the alien. And then, like, she blasts it out again. And then we get this, like, glazed expression on her face. It's like almost like a a catatonic expression. And Mm. she makes a final report. You know, I love that even in the aftermath of all this, she's like professional still and focused and.
1: <laughs> professional until the end, yeah.
0: <laughs> until the end, yeah. And soothed by uh, lovely Jonesy. But um, I'm thinking about like this sort of the, the ending proper then and this notion of, you know. <sighs> It being a cyclical film, which didn't strike me before, which probably is completely my fault, but she ends where she began, you know, in Kyra's sleep. And it's like, this time I was really like, okay, within the context of Alien, this is a satisfying end and it feels safe. But when we look at the franchise, Mm. (laughs) you know, there's a lot more waiting for Ripley. There's, There's many more like... You know, patriarchal powers. You know, mm-hmm. adversities mm-hmm. and things that are waiting ahead of her. And you know, she's back again. You know, in the grasp of who the, the company potentially the alien waiting for a rebirth right. from like this metaphorical metaphorical womb. So I wanted to know, like, what do you think about the idea of the cyclical ends and, and you know, a within just the film of Alien itself. Do you think that that's a cathartic ending? And then like be within the the sort of context of the franchise, how do you read it?
1: Yeah. I mean, it feels like you said, it feels like it's a, a beautiful like in, inclusio kind of technique where it kind of ends where we start um, and ties it back in a kind of a, a beautiful little bubble. Um, I think it's interesting the use of hypersleep as a bookending device because that's what also takes place in the second one. Like we, the second one begins with Mm. her being recovered from the Nostromo's escape pod, and then it ends with her, Hicks, Bishop, and Newt going back in hypersleep aboard the Solaku. And then the third one begins with her being awakened from the Solaku, and it ends with her spoiler being confined into eternal rest. But like a slow push in on the Solaku escape pod with the lines from the end of the first film playing over it. Um, and of course there's Alien Resurrection but that I tend to think of as the film of which we do not speak because I <laughs> don't like that film very much. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's, it's really interesting. Uh, there's loads of, uh, yeah, things you could say in terms of it being representative of, this, of womb-like safety, you know, mm. like you being snug and safe and tucked away um, mm. and and That you know, being able to dream as well. Um, you know, in in the second one, Newt says to Ripley, "Can I dream?" "Yes, honey, you can dream." Um, Mm. so yeah, for me, it's a it's a beautiful like emblem of of safety and rest. And like you said, she's got a cat on her lap. So like, (laughs) what what could be more cozy than that?
0: (laughs) So I think that just about wraps up our discussion. Was there anything else that you wanted to to mention or to chat
1: about um so the only thing i'm gonna mention and i kind of wish i prepared this at the very beginning but i wanted to flag up perhaps the greatest synopses for alien that <laughs> had ever been written and you may be familiar with this i understand it comes from a hong kong bootleg dvd um and so this is this is the official so- a synopsis of alien spaceship people get up from sleeping coffin and have eat computer woman finds strange noisings on planet and astronauts go to seeing. Astronauts find Big Elephant Man, who dead, then find too many egg. Astronaut is possessed by Egg Demon, and new Egg Demon is come from Eat Bad Noodle. Seven friends and cat all try to find Egg Demon before spaceship go home, but it's hard working. Who will life to escaping? Who is Bad Milk Robot? Scream not working because space make death. I mean...
0: Bad Milk Robot... (laughs)
1: Oh, yeah, sorry. I fluffed that line. It's bad milk, blood robot. But even so, oh, okay. even, so even
0: better then. Even better. We, we've got to, like, we put this in the zine.
1: No, I mean, I feel like I'm going to resurrect that zine now. Like, I, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's fanning the flames of, uh, of passion once again.
0: <laughs> we need an anniversary edition.
1: Yeah, well, I man. Like, I it must be about thirty years ago. I like <laughs> uh, you know, If anyone, if anyone wants to uh, have like a really amateurish uh, zine on an old nineteen nineties kind of word processor, hit me up and I'll, I'll see what we can do.
0: <laughs> I miss those where like are photocopied and like half the contents off the page.
1: Oh, mate! Like seriously, yeah, this is back in the day, like before. I think Microsoft Word wasn't even a thing. It was I forget even what it was called. It's like a word processor where it was like black green but green writing so like oh, proper yeah. you know like <laughs> very much like the tech in alien really you know um yeah
0: so um, I just wanted to give two further recommendations to listeners if they're interested in reading a bit more around Alien. There's a fantastic book called Alien Woman, the making of Lieutenant Ellen Ripley. That's by Zemina C. and C. Jason Smith that covers all the films from Alien to Alien Resurrection. And then Barbara Creed's The Monstrous Feminine has a chapter on horror and the archaic mother in Alien. Amazing. (laughs) So, Tim, I'm sure everyone is keen to know where they can find and follow you. And please tell us what's up next on your creative slate.
1: Oh, amazing. Thank you. Well, if people want to follow me for um yeah just chatting about 90s fanzines and whatever um i'm on twitter at fats coleman um i run a genre website and podcast called moving pictures film club uh, so you can read a bunch of content written by myself and other writers including rebecca um who i should say rebecca runs an excellent uh, monthly series on women in hitchcock movies um and that's available at movingpicturesfilmclub.com and just follow the the menu through to the Hitchcock articles. Uh, We also have a podcast for Moving Pictures, which comes out at least once a month. Um, And we're recording this in July. So our our episode for this month is on J-horror and Hideo Nakata's ring. So if that Mm -hmm. is your bag, do get in touch and check it out.
0: Great. As for me, I'm currently finalizing edits for here at Screen volume two, which is gonna be incredible. We've got some amazing contributors. I have an essay in volume one, which might be of interest because I go into quite a lot of detail about my relationship with Ripley. Um, You can visit heroscream.com for more details about those publications. I recently released a pocketbook called Mums and Sons, which looks at familial relationships in horror. That is available at Plastic Brain Press. You can visit them at Brain Plastic on Twitter or find them online, and they are at plastic-brain-press.com. And I also hosted a, a panel for Ghouls Magazine on Motherhood in Horror with a lineup of incredible guests. So if that's of interest, you can head over to our YouTube channel to check that out. Don't forget to find and follow Ghouls Magazine on Twitter at GhoulsMag and visit ghoulsmagazine.com for all the latest editorials, reviews, and more. Thank you to everyone for supporting ghouls. It means the world to us and it helps to keep us alive. I hope you've enjoyed being with me for this episode of the Ghouls Gang podcast. Special thanks to my guest, Tim Coleman, for taking the time to talk with me. And remember, always save the cat before saving yourself, because afterwards you will appreciate the cuddles. Thanks, everybody.